Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. I'm Erica Irish-Brown, the firm's Chief Diversity Officer. And I have historian and Pulitzer Prize winner, <laughs> Professor David Blight. His book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, won the Pulitzer for History. You started studying Douglass as a PhD student. Yeah. And you've been writing and lecturing about him ever since. Yeah. And then in 2008, you came across some manuscripts that had not been seen before, and that sparked your interest in mm -hmm. writing what you have called a daunting task. Mm -hmm. Right. So could you share with us, yeah. you know, number one, mm -hmm. what prompted your interest in Douglas, sure. right, as a young student, and, and frankly, as a young white male student, mm -hmm. what prompted mm -hmm. your interest, mm -hmm. and what made you take on this so-called daunting task? And how did you think about, you know, approaching a life like Frederick Douglass in mm. one single piece mm. of work? Mm. Uh, I probably shouldn't have, but I did. <laughs> uh, Douglass chose me in ways that I also chose him. I, we were just reflecting on this back there. It also shows my age, but I don't remember learning anything about Douglas in high school. I grew up in Flint, Michigan, and went to a very good public high school. That city's dying now, but it had great schools when I was there. In college, uh, some mention of Douglas. I took the first ever black history course taught at Michigan State in 1968 or 69. I can't remember which year. Uh, and Douglas came up, I think, but I don't remember it. It was when I was a high school teacher in the 1970s for seven years in Flint that we were first creating black history courses. Okay. Uh, this was the post-60s effort to create black history courses, and most of us didn't know what we were doing. But that's where Douglas first came. I remember I, had a, I, have a, I still have this old poster of Douglas that I had on my high school wall, classroom wall. And what I loved about that poster is it had his wrong middle initial and his wrong birth date. That makes it a collector's item. You know. It's like a baseball card with the wrong numbers on it or something. But it was in grad school. I was you know, fumbling around trying to figure out what to do a dissertation on. And I, I, I knew I wanted to work on abolitionism, particularly black abolitionists, because they hadn't been done much. And I landed on Douglas largely because he left the most material. He left the most writing by far. Now we have much more than I had access to then. And I basically could just combine back then the three things I was most interested in. The Civil War period, intellectual history, the history of ideas, and abolitionism, particularly black abolitionism. And that became the first little book I wrote called Frederick Douglass's Civil War. Douglass was a part of other books I've written always some part of this and that. Uh, I edited editions of his first two autobiographies. I wrote essays on him, but I had him out of my life. I mean, really banished. Until 2008, I went to Savannah, Georgia, of all places, to give another talk on Douglass's narrative to high school teachers, because it's now widely taught. 
And my host there said, there's a local gentleman, he's a collector, he'd like to meet and have lunch. And my reaction was probably something like, yeah. But at lunch, I met the most amazing man, and to make the long story short, his name is Walter Evans. If you get this book, I, I dedicated the book to Walter and his wife, Linda. Um, they took me in, so to speak. Walter that day showed me a major portion of his Douglas collection on his dining room table. And uh, I wasn't immediately hooked and committed. You know, there's, there's no sentimental story about that. It was daunting as the Dickens. Uh, but I realized that if I don't do this, somebody else will. <laughs> what was um, unique about those papers? You know, we have the personalized right. account, but there's lots of, uh, there's lots written on Frederick Douglass. So what came out of these papers yeah. that had not come out before? It is especially a window into the last third of this man's life, the post-Civil War years. He lives till 1895. He's born in 1818 out on this, this, in this remote spot out on the Tuckahoe River in the eastern shore of Maryland. But he lives till 1895, in the last 23 years of his life in Washington, D.C. The Evans Collection is a window into that last third, the aging Douglas, the older Douglas, the patriarch, who is the patriarch of a huge extended family, four surviving adult children, 21 grandchildren, wow. at least three fictive siblings who adopted him or he adopted them, and always a variety of other hangers-on around him. Some he welcomed, some he didn't. But also it's a window, this incredible clipping collection is a window into Douglas's ubiquitous lecture tours all over the United States and everywhere he went. Back came a clipping with him because the family, much to my surprise, hired a clipping service in the early 1880s. I didn't even know such a thing existed in the 19th century, but it was called the American Bureau and lots of the clippings have the little insignia at the top. So everywhere the old man went, well, old man to, their, to his sons. <laughs> I don't usually call him that, but anyway, back would come a clipping. And, I, and, and for a biographer, you get so much texture out of this kind of stuff. You know, not only where he's going, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of reactions from audiences and individuals, what he looked like, what he sounded like, what he spoke like, when he lost his voice and when he didn't, when he gave a lecture that was a dud. Right. And it did happen. Right. The greatest order of the 19th century, sometimes he flopped, like the rest of us. But also, his life in Washington, D.C., where he becomes, you know, he's the old radical outsider, mm -hmm. the old abolitionist who had always you know, been knocking on the doors but never inside of power. But in the last 30 years of his life, he struggles, but he manages to get inside of power to right. a certain extent. It's the old radical outsider who becomes a political insider yes. and has to negotiate that world of deals and compromises. Although he's never inside of real power, he does have a very uh, important kind of advisory role with about four presidents. And he gets appointed to three actually quite significant federal appointments, which, among other things, gave him a salary. Right. Well, I definitely want to talk about that part of his life, but let's rewind a bit and let's talk sure. about 
his childhood. Sure. Um, much of his childhood was written about in his own autobiography. Yeah. He was born a slave. Yeah. Um, most likely his father was his master, mm -hmm. uh, named Frederick Bailey. Right. Let's yeah. talk about his childhood, the impact it had on him, and yeah. then how it sort of set the stage for what was to come. By the way, Erica has really read my book carefully. <laughs> she sent me this incredible set of questions. Uh, believe me, at this point, I can tell people. Who so thank you, by the way. Thank you. It was a privilege. Thank uh, you. Well, it makes this fun. He's born a, a slave out in the middle of nowhere on the eastern shore of Maryland. Uh, his mother was Harriet Bailey, although he barely knew her. He had to essentially invent images of her in his writing. He'd always heard his father was his master or one of his masters. He was owned by two different men. And that's probably true, although he didn't know till the day he died and we still don't know. He experiences or witnesses about every savage thing that slavery could do to a child and a teenager's body and especially to a child and a teenager's mind. Yeah. And Douglas many times said in different ways that it was not his body that he feared, you know, being damaged or destroyed or hurt, but it was his mind because of the humiliations of slavery. Now, what's really important to understand, though, is he spends about 11 of his first 20 years on the Eastern Shore which is in, with time anyway, by the time he's a teenager, is in field hand labor. And at times he's even hired out to a so-called slave breaker named Edward Covey, who mm. beat the dickens out of him for nine months uh, to break him as a disobedient teenager. He, he goes through several of these hiring outs and despair that he writes about, but Importantly, he was sent to Baltimore, yeah. and he goes back and forth to Baltimore two, three times, um, especially, well, early. He goes there first when he's seven and eight years old, and then he goes back and forth twice in his teenagers. And without Baltimore, we wouldn't even know about him. Right. So uh, tell us about Baltimore. That's where he uh, learned how to, you know, the importance of words, the power of mm, words. Mm -hmm. How did that impact who he, you know, became? Right. He often referred to this in retrospect as his Baltimore dreams. Mm. And I have chapter title by that. Um, he's taught his alphabet by his mistress, Sophia Auld, who is the wife of the brother of his owner. Uh, Maybe his aunt. His aunt. Maybe. Very likely. Okay. And with time, he knows that. Mm -hmm. uh, and for more than a year, she taught him yeah. daily, like his tutor. And he learned to read and write from her, or to read. You know, writing comes later. Uh, but in Baltimore, he also encountered language and words in many other ways. And words ultimately became his weapon. Douglas excelled at language, words, while he was a slave. Streets of Baltimore, 10 and 11 years old. He has all these white buddies, these Irish and German immigrant kids who aren't old enough yet to learn their racism. And they kind of take him in. But all these kids have a school reader, a book called The Columbian Orator, yeah. which was their reader in, in school. 
That Colombian order was the book Douglas manages to go to a bookstore in Fells Point in Baltimore and purchase for about two bucks when he's about 12 years old. That book was magic to him because it's, it's, it's first of all a collection of oratory from both the classical period, Demosthenes and Cicero and so on, but especially from the European Enlightenment and American Enlightenment. And a lot of the speeches are about Enlightenment ideas like liberty and reason and freedom. But the first full chapter, I mean about a 25-page essay at the beginning of this book, intended for young people, was a manual of oratory, of public speaking. And it's everything from how to gesture with your voice and your neck and your body and your hands and your shoulders and all that, to how to modulate your voice. And then it's also got a whole section in it about how the, the true orator must reach the moral heart of his audience, must have a moral message. It was compiled by a man named Caleb Bingham from Connecticut. And it was the second best-selling school reader in the United States in the 19th century next to the McGuffey Reader. He gets a copy of this by the time he's 12. And it was, he called it his treasure. And when he escaped from slavery at age 20, the only possessions he had on his body were the sailor's suit that he wore as a disguise, a Mariner's, a sailor's mariner's ID document that he had borrowed from an old black sailor, mm -hmm. a couple of dollars in his pocket, and his Colombian order, mm -hmm. uh, which they still have at his house in Washington, D.C. today, that very copy. He also comes by language, though, the, the one other important thing about this. You know, Douglas didn't just somehow come out of slavery, this born orator and born writer. Nobody is a born writer. He learned, and another person he learned from was an old black preacher yes. in Baltimore named Lawson, Charles Lawson. He sometimes called him Uncle Lawson, sometimes Father Lawson. He was an old black preacher of a sort. He was a drayman by day who made, made a few pennies you know, with a cart. But by night and by any time off from work, he found this kid, Fred Bailey, mm -hmm. who could read so well, and he sat him down, according to Douglas, Days on end and hours by end just reading the Bible out loud, especially the Old Testament. So Frederick Douglass got language in his head, primarily from that Columbian order, but then even more so from the King James language of the Bible. And he attended four different churches during his slave teenage years. He heard different kinds of sermonic traditions. He heard different kinds of preachers, two white, two black. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he tells us what he liked about them and didn't like about them. By the time he escapes from slavery at 20, this kid is already a preacher. Right. And the first thing, well, not the first thing he did when he got to New Bedford, Massachusetts, a, a pretty safe enclave for fugitive slaves in a big maritime town, a whaling town, is get jobs. He got jobs with his hands. But the next thing he did is he joined the local AME Black Church, and within the first year, they had him preaching at age 21. Right. They found out this kid can do it. And that's where he learned, you know, the tradition of preaching from a text. Mm -hmm. And it's there that he was actually discovered right. by some Massachusetts abolitionists um, and invited uh, when he's only 23 years old yep. to join the abolitionist circuit.
So who was William Lloyd Garrison? What yeah. was the, you know, the liberator all about? Garrison was the most important and famous abolitionist in the country, based in Boston, and the real thing, uh, a radical, deeply passionate, uh, deeply Christian abolitionist who uh, had been publishing this newspaper called The Liberator since 1831. Douglas loved him at first, when they first got to know one another, and Garrison's group of abol the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society hired him. And they'd never seen anything like Douglas, this young kid, he's 23 when they first encounter him, who could speak like this, who could get up and tell these stories about slavery. Man, they'd never had someone like that. And for a while, it worked fine, it worked perfectly. They sent him out on the road, uh, 1841, 42, 43, 44, for three and a half years. Uh, Douglas took the northern anti-slavery speaking circuit by storm. And he became kind of their, their, lead, their lead voice. And uh, that's going to wear out after a while, especially after Douglas. When Douglas published his first autobiography in 1845, The Narrative, it's a short one, but it, it is the greatest of all the slave narratives. And still a bit of a mystery how he mastered writing so well so young. Right. He went to England. Well, he went to Ireland, Scotland, and, and England. But he, he went to, to, to the British Isles for 18 months as this young, brilliant, black abolitionist. The Irish loved him. The Scots went nuts over him. The Scots wrote poems and songs about him, while the Scots who liked abolitionism, not the Scots who hated abolitionism. And in Britain, he met all the major British reformers and leaders of British abolitionism. He was lionized. He encountered very little racism. Right. Nothing like what he encountered here. And when he came back from England in 1847, he came now equipped first with his legal freedom because mm -hmm. some British friends raised the money to buy his freedom. He spent nine years as a fugitive slave, right. susceptible to capture at any time. It was the, 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 the purchase deal was led by two women, two sisters up in Newcastle named Richardson. And uh, they purchased him from the, 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 the Auld brothers in Maryland, and, and all those documents were exchanged. But he also came back with, with some money mm -hmm. that his British abolitionist friends raised for him so that he could buy his own printing press, strike out on his own independently, create his own newspaper, go on his own, and break away from Garrison. Now, Garrison was 12 years older, white man. Douglas loved him. Then he doubt about that. He was a father figure, brother figure, whatever you want. And the central fact of Douglas's life that you need to understand is that he was an orphan. He had no mothers and fathers, and he had no family. He couldn't, he didn't have any sense of a family. So he was always kind of looking for these father-mother-like figures. But also Garrison kept him under wraps. Right. He was to toe a line. He was to speak about this and not about that. They wanted him to tell his tales of slavery, but not keep talking about northern racism. Douglas wanted to do both. Yeah. And he had people reporting back to him. Oh, yeah. Doug, uh, Garrison had spies. It. He had people watching Douglas. Keep an eye on this guy. So let's fast forward to the North Star. So they broke up. Right, right. And he started his own paper, yeah. the North Star. What was the relevance of that paper? Why did he need that vehicle yeah. to you know, get his words out to the public? 
Well, for several reasons. He, he does found his own newspaper. He moves out to Rochester, New York, which was known as a, an anti-slavery community. It was a big Quaker community. And he knew he'd be safe there, for one thing. Uh, and his family would be safe there. Um, but he wanted the independence of his own newspaper. This is the middle of the 19th century. This was the revolution of the Rotary Press. This sounds so weird today, but the Rotary Press that made possible the daily and weekly newspaper in the 1840s and 1850s was, was our internet and then some. Uh, if you had a newspaper, you had a way to persuade. And Douglas knew that by this point in time. He wanted his own voice and he created it. He called his paper the North Star. He founded it at the end of 1847 in Rochester. Was it a successful paper? No. It was going to die every year if he didn't get help, right. as you know. <laughs> uh, he got a lot of help uh, from one wealthy abolitionist named Garrett Smith. Without Garrett Smith's contribution, that paper would have failed. And without the work of an English woman named Julia Griffiths, mm -hmm. whom he met in England, who probably fell crazy in love with Frederick Douglass, although we can't know that for sure. I don't think that relationship was ever sexual. I mean, I get asked this all the time, so that's, I'm answering it before you ask. Uh, but she became absolutely crucial in his life for six years. She moved to the US, she moved into the Douglas House, she was his assistant editor, his fundraiser, his confidant. Uh, who, she helped him keep that newspaper alive and she helped him as an editor. He thanked her for her blue pencil because he was a bad speller. And he's, we all need an editor, and he needed one at that point too. But this newspaper now became the vehicle of his, his own kind of declaration of independence. And it's an independence physically, but more importantly, ideologically. He is growing now by the late 1840s and into the 1850s. And if you know your chronology of American history at all, this is in the wake of the Mexican War. This is right after the Fugitive Slave Act is passed in 1850. The, Fugitive slave rescues are going on in the country. Uncle Tom's Cabin was published in 1852, which took the world by storm. The political crisis over slavery that soon is gonna blow up the American Union is brewing. And Douglas moves more and more toward political abolitionism and not just the moral persuasion of William Lloyd Garrison. That breakup though, to go to the heart of your question, that breakup with Garrison and Garrison's network. And by the way, Garrison's network was, were white and black abolitionists. There were black Garrisonians deeply loyal to Garrison. That breakup was, was horrible in Douglas's life. He lost support, he lost lots of friends, uh, and it broke up in part because Garrison himself accused Douglas of having an affair in his own house with this Julia Griffiths. Um, his assistant editor, blew it up in the, in the press. Douglas and Julia, of course, totally denied it. Um, but Julia had to move out of the house for the second three years she lived in Rochester. Uh, it's a hugely important transition. He's in his 30s by then. He had a nervous breakdown yeah. in about 1851, 52. He had periods where he was bedridden. He couldn't move his limbs. Uh, there are letters by Julia and others describing him as uh, incapacitated. He even said so in his own newspaper. I cannot write for the paper this month. I'm incapacitated. 
because he couldn't put food on the table. He couldn't make ends meet. He's got five children at home now between the ages of two and 12. And he came apart. And it's worth remembering here, he has no income other than what he makes with his voice and his pen. But in this period of roughly 1850 to 1855, he did some of the greatest writing of his life. He wrote the masterpiece speech of his life, the 4th of July speech of 1852. He wrote his one novella called The Heroic Slave. He wrote hundreds of short form political editorials, which are brilliant. And he wrote his second autobiography in 1854-55 called My Bondage and My Freedom, which is his long form masterpiece. He's not the first artist or writer to sometimes do their best work under the most brutal kind of emotional pressure. Um, but without Julia Griffiths, he would have lost that newspaper. She also purchased the mortgage on his house so he could keep his house. So, I mean, when you're a biographer, this is what you have to do. You have to find both the public and the private side of a person. Because sure. it's how we live our lives, you know. We get up every day and live both sides of our lives, not just one of them. Let's talk about the Civil War. Um, maybe touch on John Brown really quickly, sure. but then go into his relationship with Lincoln. Sure. Well, the Civil War is the central event of his life. It happened when he was in his 40s. Um, he had actually dreamed of something happening that would somehow break up the Union mm -hmm. and force some kind of sanctioned effort by the federal government to destroy slavery. Lo and behold, <laughs> that is kind of what happened. Now, he didn't predict all of this by any means. But once the war broke out, and there's a whole chapter in the book uh, called The Kindling's, well, it, it's about his war propaganda, uh, the kindling spirit of his battle cry. It's a line from Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Douglas, when the war broke out, became as virulent, violent a war propagandist as you will ever read. He created the southern white slaveholders into the horrible Huns who must be destroyed, liquidated, and killed. That, I interpret, always have interpreted as a rage that had always been in Douglas since his slavery days that he had never fully processed. And now here, here was this sanctioned war against slaveholders and he was gonna make the most of it. Now, Douglas' con Douglas's conception of the Civil War, right or wrong, was that it was caused by slavery. Mm -hmm. It ought to be fought to destroy slavery. It wasn't at first, as you know, and this is where he tangles with Lincoln. And to make that long story short, during the first year to a year and a half of the war, mm -hmm. Lincoln had no fiercer critic than Douglas because the Lincoln administration was not making war against slavery. In fact, the official policy through the first year of the war is that when fugitive slaves escaped into Union lines, Union officers were supposed to figure out how to return them to their loyal masters. Turned out not to be terribly possible. But at one point, Douglas called Lincoln the most powerful slave catcher in the country. That will begin to change, not overnight, but it changes slowly, especially when Lincoln issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, 
in 18, September 1862 and then with the final proclamation in January of 63. Uh, Douglas's attitude toward Lincoln changed slowly but surely and quite decidedly by 1863-64 and in, in the last year of the war uh, when Douglas became a proud supporter of Lincoln but only because Lincoln had moved, Lincoln had grown, Lincoln had realized that you, you're not going to win this war without destroying slavery, whatever mm -hmm. the motive. Now, last thought about that, like it or not, the only way to understand how a Frederick Douglass and many others, many other anti-slavery people and even pro-slavery people, conceived of that horrific war is they saw it as this kind of Apocalyptic rending. This, is a, this was a Christian country then. Now they saw history through the lens of biblical story. Most Americans did. Uh, certainly Douglas did. And they saw this as a rending. Maybe it was divinely directed, maybe not. But it was a necessary war, a necessary bloodletting necessary destruction of the first American Republic in order to invent the second. And he saw the reimagining then. He didn't invent all of this. He witnessed that reimagining in the 13th, the 14th, the 15th Amendments, and the first Civil Rights Acts passed during Reconstruction. He saw the Civil War giving the United States the chance to create a republic that would be biracial, based on equality before law, and actually live up to those creeds, those four basic creeds of the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. His difficulty is that he's gonna live long enough, <laughs> he's gonna live 30 more years to see that triumph, right. that victory first erode, then get erased by the Supreme Court, then get defeated by terror and violence, by groups like the Ku Klux Klan and their many imitators, and then get transformed into a, a system of Jim Crow laws and even into a society that would lynch black people without, without any punishment. He's one of those rare reformers, radical reformers, who lives to see his cause win mm -hmm. and then leave, lives long enough to see it all but destroyed again. It's one of the things that makes his life and the trajectory of his life so interesting because he witnesses that whole story. And that's the perfect segue to today, yeah. right? If he lived long enough to see today, uh, much of history is repeating itself. So, you know, whether or not it's disparities in the criminal justice system mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. you know, voter tampering perhaps or, you know, access to being able to vote. Uh, you've drawn parallels yeah. between Douglas's time yeah. and today. Others have. Right. Tell us, you know, what are the parallels that you see from Douglas's time to today? Well, it's absolutely true. If you read this book or if you read any of it, just pick up a collection of Douglas's speeches or, or read the first two autobiographies if you can. You, you will at times just be stunned. You think, that could have been in today's newspaper. That, 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 that statement, that description, that, that outrage is exactly what I feel or those people feel now about whatever. Whether it's voting rights, the legacies of slavery, 
structural inequalities in our society, the manipulation of law to keep people divided or held back. We're much more subtle now about voter suppression than they were in the 19th century. In the 19th century, they might shoot you at the polls. Mm -hmm. Now they just make it hard to find a poll. And, but more important even than that, bigger than that, uh, there was no voice in the 19th century and few other voices since who had more to say, more, more to say poignantly than Douglas about what does it mean to be an American? Mm -hmm. Who gets to be an American? What is this thing we, we call diversity? In the 90s, we called it multiculturalism. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, we called it integration and biracialism. We've always had different names for this thing called this dream of a society that can be so multi-religious, so multi-ethic, so multi-racial, and still live under the same constitution and the rule of law and equality of law. I'll give you one really quick example. There's so many of them in his work. In 1867, only two years after the Civil War, the height of Reconstruction, the Republicans have just taken, over, take, taken control of Reconstruction away from Andrew Johnson. They're passing the Reconstruction Acts. It looks like, wow, you know, this may actually be possible. He did a speech he called the Composite Nation. That's what he called it. He gave it for about three years, three or four years. I can't find an example of him giving it after 1871. It's this amazing vision. This sounds like a, like a curriculum framework for today's public schools, or you know, it sounds like a, you know, the, the vision of a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious America, all living under equality before law from the 14th Amendment, which had just passed. And he even imagines in this speech that America could become this model and might even want to export these ideas around the world. He did become an expansionist. Mm -hmm. And it came out of this incredible hope that maybe, just maybe, this would be a nation now that could take these ideas of equality before law, uh, um, you know, of freedom, uh, and, and a new constitution uh, out to the world, to places especially in the Caribbean that lack this. That's gonna have its problems, especially when he becomes the US ambassador to Haiti, and he finds out that Haiti is not welcoming United States merchants. But that, that vision of that speech, it's, it's what we try every day to be now. You read that speech and you think, oh my God, I'm reading some, you know, some hype you know, from a diversity day uh, program somewhere. But that was written in 1867. Right. He doesn't give that speech after the early 1870s because it doesn't fit anymore. Reconstruction was beginning to fall apart. The retreat of the North from Reconstruction and the defeat of Reconstruction by terror and violence was sort of taking over. Uh, but. A last thought on that. I put the word prophet in the title of this book, which I had, it took a long time for me to get the confidence to, to use that word in the title. It's a big word. No one should throw it around too easily. And I read a great deal of theology about particularly the Old Testament prophets in order to understand Douglas. This man could not write either a speech and sometimes his editorials without some use of the Hebrew prophets. Sure. He had read them so carefully. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, they were his companions. And uh, I only got comfortable with the word prophet when I read some theologians about just what a prophet is, especially Abraham Heschel, a great Jewish theologian of the mid 20th century. And among the many passages I used from Heschel was the one where he says, a prophet can use words about any situation, a terrible situation, an experience we're having. A prophet can find the words one octave higher than the rest of us can hear. And in the end, they will use those words to, quote, shatter us. The prophet is not the person who just predicts things. In fact, they're often wrong. But a prophet is that person who makes us hurt. A prophet is that person who calls us to be better at something, warns us, calls us back to something, to strive for something, and may even be warning us that it's all going to blow up on us if we don't change. If you read Frederick Douglass with any care at all, you will find sentences, paragraphs, passages over and over and over that just hit you between the eyes. Mm -hmm. And you say or you think, oh my God. Oh, I'm awake. I may not like it. In fact, it's troubling. It's painful. Uh, it hurts. Read his Fourth of July speech. It's, uh, it's one of the greatest Jeremiah's in American letters. Everybody, let's thank Professor David Blythe. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on April 15th. 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.